This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this weekend's episode of the Equalizer podcast. I'm Rachel Kruger, joining you back again for another week uh, here at the Equalizer podcast. And back again with me is uh, the fearless leader. I'm going to use it over again because um, I know you said it was it was too kind last week and I didn't have enough time to figure out my introduction for you this week. But um, Jeff Kasuf is here. How's it going? I am looking at snow again. And I think this is the time of year that I find myself yelling at the TV five of the 10 days on the 10 day forecast of snow. <laughs> so, uh, doing all right, ready for a little bit of relief from the weather. Yeah, I'm over the snow as well. So I, I was talking to a friend who lives out in LA the other day and, um, he was like, yeah, I just went for a bike ride. And I was like, all right, I'm done talking to you. <laughs> you know, it brought us some cool sights, though. We've, um, not that I would – I don't think they should be playing in this, but we had the orange ball in Germany. I don't know if you saw that with Wolfsburg. In the, yeah, I, I saw uh, pictures of it. Yeah, beneficial that they have those pretty nice, actually, really bright green jerseys on a – like a <laughs> literally a white pitch that just had the lines cleared. Yeah, not a good time for uh, all-white kits this uh, this time of the year. <laughs> Um, so speaking of Europe, there you go. There's a good segue. Um, speaking of Europe, we had some, um, pretty interesting action in the FAWSL this, uh, this weekend over in England on Saturday, there was one match between Aston Villa and they took home a one nothing win over Tottenham. And then Sunday was where all of the meat and potatoes of the action was at. I mean, it was as spicy as spicy could get. Um, and using my favorite word, as chaotic as chaos can get. Um, Man United at home took on Reading and Reading won two to nothing. Um, Brighton took on Chelsea. Chelsea was the home team. Chelsea lost two to one. Everton and Birmingham City drew one one. Arsenal at home lost to Man City 2-1, and then West Ham and Bristol City drew 1-1. So um looks like three, one, two, three of the of four like home teams really dropped the ball uh this weekend. It was you know, results that I don't think a lot of people would have expected when you see when you look at the table too, um, which you know we'll get to later because it's you know, it's really tight up at the top there, um, but not the type of results that uh, people are usually expecting to see out of England. A really surprising result. It was a, a super Sunday as we are uh, experiencing in the States, but in a different way uh, for the Women's Super League because Man United, you know, it was it was really wild and fun to 
you know, at least fun as a neutral to watch play out on Sunday morning because you have Manchester United who had that recent loss to Chelsea in that huge game that we, you know, we saw um, and we got it on NBCSN here in the States and, you know, really felt like, okay, this is one that goes a long way in the title race. It's a six pointer, you know, is Manchester United for real. They lose to Chelsea, late goal, poor defending. Then they come out in this game. I will say Reading's been really a solid team this year. I think they've been very well put together. They've picked up results now, you know, this being the biggest a victory over Man United, nearly picked up results in their first meeting against Man United this season, draws uh, with, with Arsenal and Man City. So, you know, a team that has really given that big four some trouble. So you look at this play out on the early side Sunday morning, Manchester United losing this game 2-0, Two goals on set pieces, just poor defending, really. But but also, with that said, and with that sort of exposition to this point, you know, credit to Reading. I think that they set up well. They didn't try to sit into a shell and absorb Manchester United. I think that they, you know, had the respect um, had the respect for Man United, but also tried to play them, you know, and and obviously did so rather successfully. Um, so you look at this result and you're thinking, okay, Manchester United lost to Chelsea. Now they drop this, they drop all three points against Reading. Forget about it, right? You know, it's, it might be February, but um, game in hand for Chelsea. You know, this is assuming now that Chelsea is going to go win these other games that you expect them to win. And for all of about maybe 90 minutes, you know, at least I am and many are thinking, I think, you know, Manchester United forget the title race, right? I mean, certainly a European spot up for grabs and in position for it, but feels like you drop those points in that fashion and Chelsea's not going to let you back into this. 90 minutes later, Brighton goes up, set pieces again, Brighton 2-1 over Chelsea, ending a two-year unbeaten streak at home. You know, I, I would say, I was tweeting this live and it was like, you know, these two, these are the biggest results of the season so far in terms of upsets and and head turners. And they happened 90 minutes apart on a Sunday morning, at least morning in the U.S. So, you know, that the, where we thought we had clarity for that little bit of time on Sunday morning, I think we're back to that little bit of chaos, as you said, Rachel, at the top of the table where there is a very clear big three or, or top three, I should say. I don't want to stretch the term here, but Arsenal losing at home to Manchester City. Some further struggles there for Joe Montemoro's side, and and I'm sure, um, you know, even as we're recording, I'm sure some criticism to follow again for them. But um, really puts Man City, Man United, and Chelsea, you know, seven points clear. There's some difference in in number of games played, but that title race is going to be really interesting among those three. I don't want to totally rule Arsenal out, but it it feels like that's you know the case at this point, even in February. And then, but look, we've got. Games this week coming quickly. We've got Wednesday, Chelsea, Arsenal. Maybe something funky happens there. I mean, Arsenal isn't still no, you know, no pushover. And then we've got a Manchester Derby on Friday. So really uh, some interesting results, some interesting games ahead in England, some interesting results from Sunday. But I think we can all kind of firmly say as as much as Brighton and Reading have both been, I would say, those mid-table sides that have given teams trouble this year, these are very surprising results. Yeah, and I mean, the, the table, listen, the table is pretty much packed in those first three spots. I mean, Arsenal has, you know, they there's still a lot of season left. Arsenal has a long way to go. Chelsea's currently on top. 
with 32 points. Man United, 32 points, but, you know, goal differential, they are, you know, way behind Chelsea in, in that, in that regard. Um, Man City has 30 points so that your top three have 30 or more points. And then Arsenal has 23 points. So, and, and, you know, I mean, one thing that, you know, I try to pay attention as much as I can to the WSL. I, I look at the table usually every week, weekend just to like see where everything's at. I mean, Everton started out really hot this year mm-hmm. too. And all of a sudden they're in the middle of the table. Well, you know, to the, in the middle of the table, but the upper middle of the table, I guess I should say, um, in fifth place with, with 18 points. So it's like, you know, you got your three-way race for number one. It almost looks like you've got, it's, what is it, Jeff? The top three spots get a Europe, get mm-hmm. a European spot or two? Yeah. And I was, yeah, three. And I was going to say, I mean, I think it's still worth, you know, as much as that three is kind of pulled away a little bit. I think there's two things, you know, the title race is obviously still, very interesting. And I, I think the the race for Europe too. I mean, if you're Arsenal, I don't think it's necessarily realistic for Everton, but you know, I, I'm not going to totally rule them out, but if you're Arsenal, you're still playing for, even if you feel uh, nobody would admit this at a, you know, a team level, a coach or a player, but even if you feel like, okay, that title race is really beyond reach, you're still playing for a spot in Europe because I mean, Arsenal not even making it to Europe would be a significant, development and obviously a negative one for them. So you're still playing for that top three. And, and I'd say the thing I'd point out, which we say every week and is um, still playing out this way because of different cancellations, postponements, the, the matches played is still very different here. So Chelsea still with a game in hand on Man United. So they're level on points, Chelsea up on goal difference, but also has that game in hand, which is where we, you know, if, if somebody's looking and saying, well, they're level on points, why do you keep talking like Chelsea has been in control because they've had the game in hand and we've assumed that those, you know, other than the playing these other big four or so, you know, are, are kind of gimme games. We saw that's not the case this weekend, but um, Arsenal, even if we're talking about Europe, 12 games played is, is fewer than all of the teams, all three teams above them. So there is a little bit of wiggle room there, but the, it's, it keeps getting smaller and smaller that window for Arsenal to make up those points in those games in hand. Yeah, and I mean everyone is on short rest this week. There's a really quick turnaround. I was I was telling you, Jeff, earlier this week that there was a quick turnaround as well. Um in Liga Emeki's Femenil, and this is pretty much the same turnaround almost. Um granted Mexico's turnaround was, you know, the literally the next day was a new match day, but um for match day fifteen this Wednesday and then Friday and su- and Sunday, there's a big group of games. So there's four games on Wednesday. Those are um, Chelsea and Arsenal, Tottenham and Bristol City, Brighton and West Ham, Birmingham City and Aston Villa. And then on Friday, you got one game with the Manchester Derby, City and United. And then on Sunday, you've got Reading and Everton. Um, so definitely for me, I think the game, I mean, obviously everyone's going to, hype up and want to watch the the derby of of course because you know that's that's just a huge rivalry but Chelsea and Arsenal I think is going to be a really good game um and speaking of Chelsea we have some news to talk about about their manager um Emma Hayes she shut down pretty quick um any ties and links to AFC uh Wimbledon 
It's a third division, correct me if I'm wrong, third division club in, um, in England. And, you know, she, uh, spoke to the media on, I think like Monday or Tuesday. And, you know, she said she's happy at Chelsea. She doesn't want to leave there. And, um, she said, and I'm quoting here, women's football is something to celebrate and the quality and the achievement of all the females I represent. It's an insult to them that we talk about women's football being a step down with the dedication and the commitment these the, and the quality they have. Um, and then she went on later to say, you know, it, they asked her, like, you know, would Wimbledon be able to afford her? And Emma Hayes said, no, absolutely not. Listen, I'm the manager of Chelsea. I manage and represent elite world-class players. And this, for me, is an amazing job. I've spent the last nine years cultivating all my energy into it. Um, so, Jeff, what do you have to say about the ties? And, you know, obviously the conversation around this is, taking a job like that would be a step down because she's a manager of one of the biggest clubs in, in Europe. And, you know, for her, she, she does see it as a step. It's not a lateral move, I guess, is the terminology that I I wanted to use. Yeah. I mean, look, I I think there's a lot of nuance to this, but I'm glad. um, And and I think um, I've always appreciated that Emma Hayes through the years has um, been, you know, very direct and straightforward in, in her thoughts. And, and I think she's typically spot on and is, again, we talked about this a little bit the other week with Jill Ellis and, and the report of her taking the Sacramento job, which is kind of a, a bigger, um, higher piece in the umbrella, so to speak there, that it's not just a coaching position. And we talked about that last week, so don't need to go down the rabbit hole, but, um, I bring it up because similarly to what Emma Hayes said this past week is what Jill Ellis has said really since she left the national team job, the U S national team um, a year and a half ago or so a year ago um, that the next step for her, you know, she's always was asked about going into MLS seemed to be the one that kept recurring because it was domestic to the U S here, but into the men's game. And she always said, well, I don't see that as a step up from winning two world cup titles with the best team in the world paraphrasing, but this is essentially what Emma Hayes is telling the world here that, look, I mean, Chelsea is easily one of the best teams in Europe. And, and even if you want to quibble about where they rank in that, you know, top four, eight, whatever, um, you know, one of the best setups in Europe in, in women's football, really, you know, this is, I think we can safely say that UEFA has led the way, uh, maybe alongside the NWSL to some degree, but certainly the best clubs in Europe uh, are leading the way in terms of a, a facility standpoint, a destination standpoint, and building, you know, proper football clubs and, and resources, facilities, all those things off the backs of the fact that they have them in place already on their men's team. So Chelsea is one of the best teams in Europe. Emma Hayes built that largely has cultivated that culture. And, you know, she's been talking about in the past year or so wanting to win the quadruple. I mean, she has big aspirations for this team, this club, which are at the moment incomplete. And, you know, this is a a really important job. And with respect to Wimbledon, which is, you know, maybe for a certain generation is a name that holds a lot of value, but it's not 
the same Wimbledon, which is a whole complicated history, obviously, but, um, you know, it is the third division league one in England. It's a team that since 2018, so we're talking, uh, you know, basically, um, late 2018 too. So, you know, only a couple of years here that has changed managers several times. Um, so it's not even something where you might look and say, okay, there's a great job with stability and everything else. So the idea that, um, you know, I'm glad to see Emma Hayes shooting down the idea that leaving one of the best women's club setups on the planet is for a job in league one on the men's side that will not have stability where, you know, she will be put under unnecessary and immense pressure. I think we've seen that with the very few and rare circumstances where women have taken men's football jobs. I've seen in France um, once, twice, um, you know, the unnecessary pressures that exist and the, the sort of, I think the media coverage here has to be talked about because that's part of the problem is, you know, the question, I, I think her answer was shooting down a question that was framed in such a way. And, you know, that's part of the problem here that there's an idea from a lot of media members that this would somehow be this amazing thing and this upgrade. I mean, if we were saying is Emma Hayes in the running for the Chelsea men's job, which just changed hands, you know, that's a different sort of thing than is she in the running for uh, this this league one gig is you know is Jill Ellis looking to be a coach of a, a team that's been struggling in MLS you know uh, so I'm glad to see that I'm not surprised to see it shut down but I think the point here is and Emma Hayes' point is the narrative needs to change and we're a long way from that. So there's obviously the conversation about pay too um, and something that you know she had said that I had mentioned previously is. You know, they, they had asked her, well, you know, could, could they afford, could AFC Wimbledon afford you? And she said, absolutely not. Um, so, you know, it, it's not just pay either. Like, you know, some of the, you know, the quality of like where some of these teams get to play and stuff. Um, that's definitely a factor as well. The, um, like you said, Jeff, the media coverage, you know, there it's sometimes it's, you have to jump through like 12,000 loopholes to get to watch, you know, just one game. Um, so I, I guess. I guess what I'm asking is in, in regard, it, it sounds so simple, but in regard to pay, like what needs to change? It sounds very simple. Um, and I don't mean to make it sound that simple because obviously it's this, the simple answer is, well, just give them more money, but like, you know, what needs to change? Well, yeah. I mean, it's part of the, the whole equation and ecosystem. It's, you know, valuing if you want, you know, I think you could sit here and say that about, let's say, England even where, you know, you had reports of what they were willing to pay or not pay. And eventually obviously they got Serena Vegman and, you know, that's a, a very good hire, but like, you know, if you're the FA and you're willing to go out and yes, we're in different times with COVID and people have taken budget hits and we've seen that with us soccer even, but you know, if you're willing to go out and spend a certain amount of money or chase down, um, you know, managers on the men's side, which, um, granted the FA process has been a little bit funky on the men's side too of late, but, um, if you are a federation, let's say then who is willing to do this on the men's side, then if you want the coach who just won the last two world cup titles, you know, as your new manager, then yes, you need to pay 
significant amount of money for that. If you're not willing to, then in, you know, inherently, um, implicitly, or maybe even explicitly, you are not valuing that work to the degree that you need to, to secure those services. So, uh, same here, you know, I kind of chuckle at the fact, but it's, it's true. Like would Wimbledon or some of these other clubs at that level afford Emma Hayes? Uh, she says no and good. I mean, she should say that, um, because this is, you know, I think Emma Hayes is and, and have for a while thought that she's one of the best managers period. Um, and, and that's why maybe her name comes up in some of these, these things about, well, you know, uh, inside that needs, uh, needs a new manager, but, you know, I think she's continued to be sort of maybe disrespected on these world coach of the year type votes, even if in a given year, she's not necessarily winning it, but should be certainly getting more attention. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's all part of this perception and, you know, we're not based in England. I'm not going to say that I know the day to day as well, but I think there is an element too, of you talk about the media coverage and the perception needing to change. I, you know, I think there is a difference from, I'd like to think there's a difference anyway, maybe from if this were to happen, a prominent woman taking a prominent or semi-prominent men's coaching role. I think if it were to happen in the U.S., the scope of the media coverage, I think it feels like from afar would be potentially a little bit different from that happening in the U.K., where I think... um you know, we have tabloids in the U.S. I thankfully don't go near them. Um, they're, they're more of the entertainment variety. But I think in the U.K., you have that tabloid culture that is ingrained in the sporting culture as well, where it's maybe not so much on the soccer side here in the U.S. So I think you have a slightly different scenario of what you're dealing with day to day with media. And that, that can be exhausting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the more accessible everything is in return in, bleh, in regard to the women's game, the better it's going to be. Yeah, and you know what? For me, but, like you know, for me, I mean, to the point. Like, I don't see. I've been wondering. Okay, at what point, if at all, does Emma Hayes say, "I am ready to"? You know, to me, it's always been like moving up for her. The thing that makes more sense and, and the club and international game are totally different. You have different realities, schedules, family life, et cetera. But like, is it, let me try to win a world cup with England. That makes more sense, way more sense for her caliber and, and talent and everything than, you know, can I go get a struggling league one side uh, back on track or something. I mean, that's, that's where I think I would fall. And it sounds like, you know, I don't know about the England part, but obviously certainly the league one part of it, uh, that's where her head is at. And and it's just focused on Chelsea. I mean, that, that's the thing. That's the whole point here. She's at one of the best jobs she can be at in women's soccer. And I think we have to start framing that better as like, she's at a premier soccer job already. Yeah, without a doubt, Chelsea is is pretty top tier, and hey, they're in first place. So, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> um, that's gonna do it for us uh, for segment one. We will be back in segment two to talk about a little bit of the uh, NWSL. We're gonna talk about the She Believes Cup roster. Um, so we'll be back soon. See ya. 
Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Equalizer podcast. We'll be right back to that in a minute, but just want to make sure that you're aware of our other podcast from the Equalizer Network, Kicking Back. It's one that I host, and each week we talk to personalities from across the sport of women's soccer, coaches, players, executives, plenty of great guests throughout season one from U.S. coaches, Vlatko Anonofsky, Jill Ellis, to players like Crystal Dunn, Becky Sauerbrunn, NWSL Commissioner Lisa Baird, so many great guests, and we're coming up on Season 2 pretty soon, and you are not going to want to miss what we have in store for you. So go ahead and check out Kicking Back. If you're listening on a podcast platform right now, you can find us there as well. We're on all the podcast platforms, and we're looking forward to another exciting season of really in-depth interviews and fun interviews with our latest guests. That's it for me, and let's get you back to the Equalizer podcast. Welcome back to the Equalizer podcast. Don't forget to check us out on social media. Um, subscribe to the Equalizer at equalizersoccer.com slash subscribe. We've got great content rolling out, a lot of good features. And with the NWSL coming back um, with preseason just starting this past week, we got a lot going on there. So um, don't miss out. Don't forget to subscribe. It's good stuff. So um, subscribe today at equalizersoccer.com slash subscribe. Uh, we're going to start off segment two here, um, with the She Believes Cup roster. I'm not going to go down, um, every single name. It's, it's on our website. You know, obviously U.S. Soccer has it as well. Um, there are some not really big differences. I think there's, you know, the goalkeepers is definitely, um, an area to look at in itself. Um, so that I, I kind of want to start with just going down the list. Um, you've got Alyssa Nair, pretty much your clear cut number one, Jane Campbell and Casey Murphy's there, um, with the North Carolina Courage. Casey Murphy, who just signed a two year contract with Courage. Um, she is there in place of, um, Ashlyn Harris, who has, who was with the team when they were just recently, uh, training in Florida. So, um, yeah, I've always been a big Casey Murphy fan. I think, um, I think she has done some really, really, really good stuff for club. Jane Campbell, likewise. Alyssa Nair, likewise. So I don't have any qualms there. I just think that, you know, it, it's, and, and nothing against Ashlyn Harris, but it's one of those out with the old and with the new type things. Um, and, it, and the team's getting younger, which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. So um, I'm happy to see the inclusion of of Casey Murphy. Do you have any any thoughts on the goalkeepers there, Jeff? Well, I think that, you know the two big omissions are are Ashlyn Harris and Allie Krieger. That you know I think those were talked about um, on the you know throughout the week since it was named, and you know Vlako Anonofsky's answer. Uh, I think the first question he got on our press conference call was, "Should we read into this at all about the Olympics?" He said, "No." You know, obviously, I think there's some reading into that you have to do at, at large. Um, but, you know, he mentioned sort of knowing what those two players bring to the table and trying to get a look at some others who haven't been in as much. So in that sense, you know, Jane Campbell obviously got the cap in January against Columbia, Casey Murphy in again, and and someone that Ananovsky knows fairly well from the club side. So, you know, I think it's it's a little bit tough to say what this means exactly for the Olympic roster um, because we do have some time and we do know that Alyssa Nair is the clear number one. So 
I, I do actually believe on the goalkeeper side, this could be a way to potentially just maybe get some, you know, some reps in and see where a couple of younger players are, are at, um, you know, for the Olympics and, and maybe beyond even. So I don't know that, you know, on the goalkeeper specifically, this means that, you know, we're, we're seeing a sea change for the Olympics. It certainly could, but, you know, I, I think that's where maybe this, this looks, you know, how things look on the goalkeeper side as far as this summer goes. And then I think, you know, obviously a couple of other interesting points there in the roster that we'll get to, but nothing, nothing hugely surprising out of this, she believes, which I don't think there should be coming out of a, you know, we're only a couple of weeks removed from these Columbia games and January camp. Yeah. And in addition to the roster, there are some training players heading down uh, to Orlando to train with the team. Emily Fox from Racing Louisville, Jalen Howell from Florida State, Mallory Pugh from the Chicago Red Stars. Um, so, you know, are you, were you surprised to, since it's in Orlando, not even see like Allie Krieger and Ashlyn Harris's name on, you know, the training, uh, the training player roster? Or do you think it's just one of those things that let them go with their club for preseason and, and, you know, they'll take care of it, um, with the pride? You know, that's a, that's a fair point, actually, because I hadn't really considered that they are local to, uh, U.S. soccer's new home base of Orlando there with all these men's and women's games there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it is worth noting too that NWSL preseason started a week ago and these players, you know, everybody on the She Believes Cup roster basically, I mean, there were a couple of players who got a few training sessions in beforehand, but is essentially with U.S., the U.S. women's national team now for the couple weeks and then will report to their NWSL teams afterwards. So, you know, I think that there is actually some value to those NWSL teams to have players in. Um, so I think, you know, if you're the pride, you're probably to some degree happy about that, that you can train with, you know, two of your, I would say probably clear starters, um, for a longer period of time. So, you know, I, th- I think that's fair. Um, but a fair point too, that they are in Orlando, you know, the training players is something that they've been, I think certainly Andonofsky has been doing and, and Mallory Pugh has been in that situation a couple of times now. Um, you know, I, I would say for me, the biggest thing here, other than what we've just talked about, would probably be, um, you know, Christy Mewis is back in the equation. And I've, I, you know, asked Flacco about that on the call. And what took me, um, what, what stood out to me, I think, was that he was talking in a manner, I'm not saying, you know, we'd have to pull the full quote. I'm not saying that Christy Mewis is going to start, but my question was more, should we read into Christy Mewis being back fourth straight camp, you know, fighting for a spot on the Olympic roster, certainly. And he kind of said to the degree of, you know, she's been great off the bench and it doesn't mean she's going to stay on the bench, which is, sounds like a progression from, you know, what we assume was starting, you know, fighting for a roster spot. Seems like she's well in that mix of maybe in his mind, you know, in that 18 at the moment? Yeah, I think, you know, it's very well-deserved from Christy Mewis to be in any roster she can with the national team. I, you know, Jeff, we talked off air. I'm a big proponent of as long as you are performing for your club team, you deserve a chance at the national team. 
I've said that many times on this podcast. It's something that I will probably keep saying until the day I die. Um, as long as you are, you know, performing well with your club side, the call up is deserved. So I'm, I'm definitely happy for her. I'm very excited to see that she's back in it. And I think, you know, she's, you know, she, the She Believes Cup game ha- games haven't even been played yet. And for me, I think she's already deserving of that Olympic spot. I think Christy Mewis, just with the year she had last year, carrying, and not even just the year she had last year, carrying that over to um, the U.S. Women's National Team in terms of productivity, not really, you know, not really lagging with a with a different group of players. I think that that's really special. So the fact that she was able to be back on this roster is is exciting because I think it's very well deserved. Yeah, and you know, Sam Mewis obviously dealing with an injury she picked up in one of those Columbia games, hasn't yet returned for Manchester City. Hananovsky said he thinks they'll get maybe one game out of her or, or in appearance in one game at the She Believes Cup, which is, you know, there's still a little bit of time till obviously. So, you know, Sam Mewis' absence might actually open the door further for some playing time for Christy Mewis in some ironic world still sisters helping each other to some degree, I guess, but, um, you know, with an unfortunate angle for one of them, it sounds like, I guess the bigger point there is it's a minor enough injury that they think they might get some minutes for Sam Mewis, um, which obviously, you know, the bigger injury we talked about last week or the other week was, is Tobin Heath, who's out for at least a couple months, a few months maybe. And, and that's a big one. So, you know, I think there's, at least um, with respect to Argentina, obviously, and obviously they're dealing with a lot that we, you know, could talk about at length in terms of why it exists um, and, and what's going on. But, you know, I would say two very good games on tap, good quality opponents to, to really kind of, you know, two Olympic opponents that you can gauge yourself against if you're the U S and um, you know, I think it, it's something where we should, you know, we should learn a lot about, a Christy Mewis and Alana Cook, who's back and, and impressed recently. Um, you know, even some of the more veteran players. I mean, we've talked about this, but the forward line, the forwards, quote unquote, in this camp, and this is not even, you know, Katarina Macario is listed as a midfielder. Um, but forwards, Carly Lloyd, Alex Morgan, Kristen Press, Megan Rapino, Sophia Smith, Lynn Williams, you know, that whole group is not going to the Olympics. Like, so th- there's a lot still to be figured out. And these are games that um, I would say games. And again, I emphasize this a lot training. We don't see training, but that's where a lot happens training and games where things will sort of sort themselves out. Well, and you know, something too, to come to mind is I, I think Blacko is, I think just like me, he is a big proponent on, you know, club play as well. I think that's kind of why you see Christy Mewis is in there as well, because she did, you know, take that, um, have a really good season in 2020. And then she took that to the national team. But I, I think something to remember is like somebody, you know, Shea Groom, for example, could go and just be an absolute scoring machine and be destroying every defense in the NWSL possible during um, the upcoming challenge cup. That's going to kick off what in April, I think. Um, and Vlaco could see that and be like, well, Hey, listen, you know, she, is doing all this stuff in the NWSL. She needs a look or like somebody like um, Bethany Balser from OL Reign. So um, 
I think that's always something to keep an eye on as well. That That's where, you know, not to make it too much of a Rachel Rant show, but that's where those uh federation contracts kind of come into play that I don't like because it kind of ties you down to those players that are on those federation contracts. And that's pretty much who you're going to go with because you're paying them all that money. But then you well, have a player come in and just absolutely boss in the league. And then it's like, well, you know, we've got our federation contract players already. I would disagree with that. I think, you know, the federation contract is a complicated system that, you know, we've, we've written about recently. There's some news that I broke recently with how the changes are taking place already with, you know, Portland obviously taking advantage of it among others of, of how these things will be structured. And I think the point of it, the whole point of it is that we are moving away from them. Everybody around the league seems to think that it's just a matter of when and how that happens, which are big, you know, big caveats, obviously. But, you know, I, I think there's been a separation of federation contract versus, you know, you know, having to be tied to that player in any sort of way. I mean, we've even seen that with, I think the past few years, there've been players who've gotten federation contracts where we've kind of said, you know, Hmm. I mean, they haven't been that much of a regular, but you know, they were on a federation contract. They were previously, you know, and so there's been some carryover there and, and now even more so, you know, whereas I think, you know, this is why GMs exist at a club level because you'll hear this from coaches. If you talk to them, they don't want to negotiate a player's contract and then have to figure out how they're going to play her on the weekend. So, you know, the Kate Markcraft GM role, the GM role is new as of, you know, this cycle, this tenure with Flacco in place. And she obviously was leading the hiring process of him, but, you know, it didn't exist previously. So you had that scenario where a coach was involved in like, make these decisions about who's on a federation contract that obviously is going to, to whatever degree, probably trickle into a locker room. But now you have some equity and whether, you know, and how you're making money in this new sort of setup and evolved system where federation contract isn't even necessarily the way to get paid the most anyway. And you have a GM that's really part of uh, leading the process and assigning those. So, that your coach can go out and say, you know, I'm not worried about who's getting paid by U.S. soccer. I'm worried about who's performing. That's okay. That's fair. I, I hear what you're saying. I just know that. I don't know. I just don't like them. <laughs> that's that's. I guess where I'll leave off. Um, well, they're on. They're on their way out. So you'll be ahead. happy in. Uh, I don't know, somewhere between nine months and a couple of years or whatever it's going to be. Good. I'll take it. I'll take whatever I can get at that point. <laughs> um, so um, any other, any other thoughts from you on the, on the She Believes Cup roster before we shift into uh, the NWSL? I am not related to the She Believes. I think it's worth a quick mention. I, I know we'll do a couple of quick news items here. So there was a, there was a, an, a world team of the decade released which is probably worth a quick shout from the uh, International Federation of Football History and Statistics. Um, we can link it in this episode, I think, instead of reading it up. But I'm, you know, related to She Believes, I think it's wild to me. You know, we talk about kind of underrated players. I always think defenders are underrated. I have, I mean, it's hard to say any of the four defenders on there, Nila Fisher, Saki Kumagai, Wendy Renard, Lucy Bronze, should not be there. But also... It's, it's bizarre to me how like 
in the year of 2021, we can look back on the decade that was of 2011 to 2020 and not think that Becky Sauerbrunn, like we talked about her as the best center back in the world, best defender in the world for a good stretch of that decade, at least the back half of it. And she won two World Cup titles and anchored the back line of those two teams. Um, so there's my tangential rant to the She Believes Cup roster, which is that Becky Sauerbrunn, even if at the end of her career or toward it, whatever you want to say now, I mean, from 2011 to 2020, I don't know how you don't look at her as like an anchor of any sort of team of the decade with what she did for club and country, but I digress. Well, that that was the key right there. I was going to say she didn't even just do it for um, country. She did it for club too with, you know, FCKC and then the the Royals. And then now she is in uh, in Portland, which is still weird to think about and weird to say. I still can't see Becky Sauerbrunn in Portland colors. I'll get used to it eventually. Um, but, oh, and one thing you mentioned too, Jeff, you know, with the, with the She Believes Cup, um, Argentina, they released their roster. Um, Estefani Bonini is not on the roster. She had spoke out against the Federation um, after the 2019 uh, World Cup that, you know, Argentina went to. So there, there have been some players that have been speaking out and they have kind of been shunned from the national team. So that is certainly something to um, bring up in these games as they, as they go along that, you know, Argent, Argentina's Federation, um, once again, sounds very simple. I don't mean to make it sound very simple, but they need to do better. Um, so I, I don't know if you had any thoughts on, on that in Argentina, but I will say I am very, I know I said this last week, I am very excited for Brazil versus Argentina because I mean, that's like peak South American common bowl rivalry. So very excited about that game. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Estefania Benini is um, obviously the, the big, um, a spectacular player has obviously been omitted from the team and, and for non-soccer reasons by any objective observer. And, you know, that'll be argued by the AFA and has been, um, yeah, I would say we do have a piece. Maybe also we can link it in this, you know, in on the website anyway, on equalizersoccer.com that we've got uh, from Brenda Elsie from, just after the 2019 World Cup when this all started, that players, prominent players, including her, spoke out about the lack of preparation from the Federation and maybe they would have had better performance, better results at the World Cup if they were better supported. And that's, you know, a year and a half on is is still ramifications of that still happening. So I would say um, that's one that we wrote about in depth and obviously, you know, continues and maybe needs some updating, but has a lot of that backstory from then. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a situation for us to keep our eyes on. And, you know, I know that's something that is going to be brought up um, in the next couple of weeks when these games uh, start being played. So, you know, moving on from the international game from She Believes Cup, uh, NWSL preseason started this past week. We are um, we are gearing up for another, you know, historic season, the league has I think what was year seven the the historic one and now we're in year what nine I think um I'm losing track all I well, know is that yeah. it, it's growing um, year four even because none of the other you know the others only made it three th- yeah see I me and numbers don't work anyway it's still a historic season um very excited um uh, this is it, it's great to have 10 teams again you know obviously um Utah 
lost, not lost their team because they still have the rights and everything. They could, you know, come back to the NWSL one day, fingers crossed that they do. Um, but you've got an expansion team with racing. You've got, um, a not expansion team, but a new team with, um, with Kansas City coming in. And we're starting off with the Challenge Cup, which is going to be in April. And, uh, Richie Burke is the source of all sources because he pretty much gave us what the groups are going to look like um for the for the challenge cup so uh jeff why don't you tell everyone what the groups are yeah i guess we can take richie burke at his word for it for now um you know no schedule yet but the groups washington spirit sky blue fc north carolina courage orlando pride and louisville racing louisville um i think that makes sense you know it was always going to be geographic because they're being being played in home markets you know, I think you could quibble a little bit with the idea that you don't get Louisville, Chicago early, uh, a chance to, to kind of play that early. And, and, you know, maybe that being, uh, you're always going to, no matter how you divided this, you're going to have something sort of a little bit funky, um, in the quote unquote middle of the country because yeah, you have four truly East Coast teams and along, you know, semi easy travel there. So I think you had to put them and then you've got one spot left in that group. So no matter what, you're going to have something a little bit funky, but then, you know, this is just the way the league shakes out and has always to date really is you've got um, a spread out Western region, but that'll obviously change come 2022. Add in two California teams, you know, all of a sudden you have four truly coastal teams on the West coast. So um which we talked about a little bit last week too. So yeah, I think the groups make enough sense. Yeah, I'm excited. Um it it it's cool because there's it's even but it's not even with the sense of you have an equal number of teams on each side, but it's still five, so it's like I don't know. It 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 would be better with like four and four, but obviously that's not that's not the case and you don't want the teams to, you know, decrease, but I mean, I think the groups are going to be fun. I think they're going to be exciting. And, you know, um, I'm just excited to see the newness of racing Louisville. And I'm excited to see the newness of the somewhat newness, I should say, of the, of the new Kansas City, uh, team coming in. Uh, so that's exciting, you know, with NWSL kind of keeping on that front. Big news this week with Sydney LaRue and the Orlando Pride. She signed a three year contract and, you know, I was, I was kind of waiting to see what was going to happen because, you know, not to make it all about Sydney LaRue's husband, but I, I feel like a lot of Pride fans, when they did see that Orlando City SC was not bringing back Dom Dwyer, they were probably like, Oh boy, is, is this going to be another situation where, um, you know, say Dom goes to Seattle or something and like then, you know, Sydney LaRue would, would want to move you know, to be, to have her family together. Um, so uh, to see that she is staying in Orlando, I'm sure that's a sigh of relief for a lot of, uh, for a lot of the pride fans. I know she loves it there. That's her home. Um, it's, it's where she's been for quite some time now. Um, so that was, that was the big news. And then, um, John Halloran, our colleague and friend here wrote a great piece on Erica Timrak because after uh, a year of retirement, she is back. In the NWSL, she wanted to go to Orlando. That's where she, um, it's where she played college. It's where she's from. 
Um, so she is back with the pride. She signed a one year deal. So definitely check out that story. She talked, um, she was very honest about retirement and how she wanted to come back. And she just kind of had that itch and, and rekindled, uh, her love for the game. So it was a great piece that, that John wrote. So be sure to check that out. Um, but Jeff, I guess starting with Sydney LaRue, just kind of your thoughts there. Cause right now, um, the pride only have, uh, three, well, not anymore because they just had another trade, I think, but to double check, I will fact check myself here, but when Sydney LaRue was signed, there were three forwards, her, Marta and Alex Morgan. Yeah. I mean, I think there's some, some, uh, wiggle room there, I guess, with like a Taylor Korniak that, um, there, there are players who maybe aren't, I don't know exactly how it was listed in front of me here, but, um, there are players who can certainly play forward, but, um, yeah, LaRue signing is, is kind of the bigger one of the week. There was the trade sending Carson Pickett from Orlando to North Carolina, I think is the other notable piece. And, and to your forward point, what Orlando does with what they got back, which are the rights to Jody Taylor. That's it. Um, yep. <laughs> I, I don't know, you know, TBD, I guess, as, as many things are still, but, um, you know, the LaRue contract, you're right. You know, that's been the case in the past, even before they had kids and, and obviously is a significant factor that, you know, they, they tried to be in the same market and, and that was part of the trade history, um, for her. Um, and then, you know, the commitment from Orlando maximum term that's allowable in the NWSL three years with an option. And then, um, we've come to find out very shortly after the announcement that it is involving allocation money, which puts her above the league max at 50,000 per year. The league max is 50,000 per year. puts her above that. So it's a significant commitment, um, you know, to a player who has certainly, you know, been very good. And we just haven't seen a lot of recently for obvious and, and, you know, for obvious reasons Um, and really 2020. And she talked about this kind of, as it was with many kind of, taken away from her, unfortunately, where we thought we'd see more of her and now she's ready for 2021. So, you know, there's a big commitment there from Orlando. Obviously they're seeing her day to day and and making that commitment. So, um, you know, I think interested to see, you know, our colleague Dan Laletta wrote a good article from the, the media call with LaRue this past week. And she said, you know, I'm 30, but I don't think that's old. I have friends that are playing, you know, on the national team and still killing it at 30. And, um, you know, she thinks she's, she's just getting started and can get back in that picture even. So, you know, we'll see. Or- Orlando needs that, certainly. And I, I think that, you know, it's, it's funny that you say that because it's not discrediting Sydney LaRue by any means, but we already just talked about how crowded that forward pool is. Um, with the United States, we talked about that a little bit earlier. Um, so yeah, she definitely has the talent to get back in there, but with how crowded it is right now, it's, that's something that's definitely up in the air, but no, Orlando, especially if, you know, it, it's always the big, the big statement with the Olympics is if it happens, if the Olympics happens, um, Sydney LaRue is definitely going to be needed by the pride because Alex Morgan could be going to Tokyo. Marta is definitely going to Tokyo with Brazil. Um, so and then even with, you know, Jody Taylor, she's been kind of floating around the England pool for a while. So she could always go with England. You never know. Um, if, if she, you know, comes back to the pride and whatnot. Um, 
so I think that, you know, that forward pool is, is crowded and, you know, the pride need a, need a forward um, that is reliable um, and consistent. So it's a good signing. Um, but, you know, Jeff, we mentioned earlier the Casey Murphy signing a two-year deal with um, North, uh, North Carolina. North Carolina traded for Carson Pickett. Um, and then I don't remember if we talked about this last week or not, but um, Gunny Yon's daughter is heading to the Pride um, as well. She was part of the um, Tim Rack trade. Um, and Kristen um, Edmonds is heading to Kansas City. So a lot of moving parts um, as NWSL preseason begins. So I guess before we close out the show, just a- any thoughts on on that? Any just general you know thoughts on the preseason? Uh, preseason, you know, I think is always a, it's exciting that it's getting going and then you have to see kind of, you know, it's, it's a bit of a process, obviously. So, um, you know, there's rosters. I'm glad that they're training. I hope they're training safely. You know, that's kind of where I'm at, at, at the moment. I'm, I'm just ready like many to, to get to some games. I think we should mention too, though, before we go that, um, Katarina Macario, Leon debut this week in a, in a tight game, um, for Leon that, that just barely, uh, you know, two to one, a victory that keeps them over Montpellier that keeps them in the, uh, the thick of things ahead of another PSG game that they're going to need to win. So, um, debut for, for Macario professional debut wearing the number 13 shirt. So, um, that, that would be the other thing from the week that we should say. For sure. Always exciting to see the young talent making a big splash. Um, she went in early too, didn't she? Yeah, first half sub for Emmanuel Henri. Um, so, you know, I think probably not planned for that time, certainly with uh, how the game shook out. But yeah, a, a big, uh, a big debut there. And over um, in Europe too, I know that the Bundesliga is starting back up. I think next or th- this coming weekend, um, Liga MX Femenile is still, you know, all full steam ahead. There's no weekday games this week. Um, they will be back during uh, the weekend as, as they will just be back during the weekend. I don't know where I was going with that, um, but the Atlas is uh, undefeated no more. That is something to make known. They had a draw uh, this past week. So that's kind of the interesting tidbit uh, there. So that is going to do it for us for the Equalizer podcast. My name is Rachel Krieger. That's Jeff Kasuf. Our producer is Jacqueline Purdy. She is a rock star. So thank you for working your magic on all of this. And we will see you guys next time. Don't forget to submit your questions before the next show. We will put a call out on, uh, on our Twitter page. So until next time, everyone have a good week.